Acute pancreatitis is a common cause of hospital admission, and the severity can range from mild to deadly. A lot of what was recently considered common practice in pancreatitis is now out of date as we have more data to guide our care. The times they are a changing indeed. I am frequently going to refer to the guidelines during this lecture, and what I am referring to are the acute pancreatitis guidelines published in July of 2013 in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. All right, so acute pancreatitis. The etiologies basically are broken down into three categories. There's the rare causes like autoimmune disease or viral infections such as Coxsackie or CMV virus. There can be trauma to the pancreas. Sometimes there's even pancreatic cancer or adenocarcinoma causing acute pancreatitis. And then I'm still looking for the scorpion sting and spider bite.、Um, haven't found that yet. And ischemia would also fall into an etiology that's pretty rare to see. Then there are the common causes: alcohol and gallstones. Alcohol and gallstones. And I'm going to throw ERCP into the common category just based on my own experience. The most textbooks don't list it in the common etiology category. There is the occasional etiology category, and most people list ERCP in that. But in the occasional category. I will say that you're going to see this stuff on a fairly frequent basis, meaning every couple years you may see somebody with severe hypertriglyceridemia causing pancreatitis. You may see hypercalcemia, particularly when it's associated with hyperparathyroidism causing pancreatitis. And then there are a whole bunch of medications. I'm not going to list them all, but sometimes it's even commonly prescribed medications like Lasix, hydrochlorothiazide, simvastatin. But while lots of people take those medications, very few people actually get pancreatitis from those medicines. HIV medicines are sometimes associated with pancreatitis. And when I have a case of pancreatitis where the etiology isn't clear, I look at the med list. And I often have the hospital pharmacist take a close look at the medication list. Needless to say, treatment may vary based on the etiology. If the cause is a medication or alcohol, discontinuing those substances is the initial thing you do. If hypercalcemia is the etiology, then you want to bring that calcium level down. If a stone is still lodged in the duct, get that bad boy out of there with an ERCP. By the way. What would be a lab tip-off that a gallstone is obstructing the bile duct? If the liver enzymes are acutely elevated, there's your sign. But it is worth emphasizing that ERCP is not needed in most patients with gallstone pancreatitis who lack laboratory or clinical evidence of ongoing biliary obstruction. That comes right from the guidelines, and that's a strong recommendation with a low quality of evidence behind it. If you do have an acute pancreatitis patient who also has acute cholangitis, that patient really does need an ERCP, and it should be done less than 24 hours after admission. So, acknowledging that there will be very specific things to do with specific etiologies, I'll be focusing on the bigger themes of treating acute pancreatitis, as opposed to focusing too much on any single etiology. Now, I do have to mention that. There are tons of severity scores available to use with pancreatitis. This includes the Ranson's criteria, 
the Emory score, the Apache score, and others. I personally occasionally will calculate severity when I want to reassure myself the patient is not deteriorating or doesn't need the ICU, or to provide prognostics to family if things are going poorly. But to be honest, in private practice, you rarely see hospitalists or GI docs using the various scoring systems. And the reason for that, it is usually pretty clear if the patient is getting better or not. However, if you're a med student or a resident out there, you still need to do it because we all did it while we were in training. And like Woody Allen said, tradition is the illusion of permanence. And it would be just too psychologically difficult for us to think you don't have to go through the pain we endured in medical school and residency. Now, actually, learning prognostic criteria really does teach you about the complications to watch for in acute pancreatitis, such as renal failure, symptomatic hypocalcemia, hypoxia. So there is a rationale to making you learn it. And as I said, there are some practical cases for actually doing the calculation, particularly if you're on the fence about the severity and whether the patient should be in the intensive care unit or not. Usually the presentation of pancreatitis is pretty obvious, but if you're a stickler, you need two of the three following criteria. You need to have abdominal pain consistent with the disease. It's often in the epigastric area, often radiates into the back. And then you have to have serum, lipase, or amylase greater than three times the upper limit of normal. And the third criteria is characteristic findings on imaging. I'm going to be talking about things like imaging and necrosis and aggressive hydration and other issues probably in the next lecture. But first, I would like to tackle the topic of when do you feed and how do you feed a patient with acute pancreatitis? Because this has been a very hotly debated topic for a long time. And it's cool that we now have data that continues to roll in that's helping to clarify these debates. There was a study in the November 20th, 2014 New England Journal of Medicine, and it was titled Early versus on-demand nasoenteric tube feeding in acute pancreatitis. Now, we know that using tube feeds is better than TPN from previous trials in acute pancreatitis. We used to say, rest that gut. And a lot of practitioners would prefer to use TPN in the old days compared to putting food into the GI system. Since the pancreas helps to digest foods, it didn't really intuitively make sense to make the pancreas active, releasing more digestive enzymes, but we were wrong and so be it. So like I said, we now know that using tube feeds is better than TPN from previous trials. And the working hypothesis for why that seems to be true is that there is a gut mucosa preserving effect of early enteral feeding. Bacteria in yeast can translocate from the gut lumen, thus causing pancreatic infections, can cause ascites to get infected, bacteremia. So introducing nutrition early to keep that gut lumen healthy is probably why it is advantageous. Now, what about just letting patients eat instead of forcing a foreign object into their nose and into their esophagus? So that's getting back now to this New England Journal of Medicine trial in 2014. And the trial says 
that starting food at 72 hours is just as good as using a tube feed. Specifically, the conclusion from the trial was, and I'll quote them, this trial did not show the superiority of early nasoenteric tube feeding as compared with an oral diet after 72 hours in reducing the rate of infection or death in patients with acute pancreatitis at high risk for complications. So perhaps Hippocrates was onto something when he said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Just don't eat too much. I, I recently had a patient tell me, I eat whenever I'm bored. And I said, well, how often are you bored? And she said, constantly. And then she pointed at her husband in the corner and said, if you were married to him, you would be bored all the time too. But I digress. Now, there still seems to be a lot of opinions out there on a lot of hospital wards about nutrition and feeding and acute pancreatitis. And to try and clear up some of the debates about best practice, I'm going to read the four recommendations from the guidelines regarding nutrition. The first is that in mild acute pancreatitis, oral feedings can be started immediately if there is no nausea and vomiting and the abdominal pain has started to resolve. Actually, the guidelines say if the abdominal pain is resolved, but I must say if the abdominal pain is starting to resolve, I usually start some form of feedings. The second recommendation is that in mild acute pancreatitis, initiation of feeding with a low-fat solid diet appears as safe as a clear liquid diet. The third recommendation is that in severe acute pancreatitis, enteronutrition is recommended to prevent infectious complications. Parenteral nutrition should be avoided unless the enteral route is not available, not tolerated, or not meeting caloric requirements. The fourth recommendation is that nasogastric delivery and nasojejunal delivery of enteral feeding appear to be comparable in efficacy and safety. I remember some docs with some pretty strong opinions that nasojejunal feedings were much safer than nasogastric in pancreatitis patients, but it turns out it really doesn't matter. Now, if somebody seems to be getting worse with eating or tube feeds in regards to significant worsening of pain or vomiting, it seems prudent to hold those feeds for a while. And sometimes you have really severe ileus issues in some of these patients with really big abdominal issues going on with the pancreatitis. So yeah, in that case, you, you really can't feed, whether it's through a tube or oral feedings. And sometimes you still have to consider TPN in those special situations. Now, another issue that tends to come up on the wards, what if the pancreatic enzymes are still very elevated? That actually is not a reason for holding enteronutrition. Treat the patient, not the numbers, and get them patients the nutrition they need. All right, so that will end part one of acute pancreatitis. It's a big topic, so I'll be back soon with part two. Hope you're enjoying the Hospital and Internal Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat.